Hello, welcome to the Business Podcast. I'm Adit Chakraborty. This week, four Rio Tinto employees are beginning lengthy prison sentences in China. Their corruption trial was held partly in secret. So we ask, what are the rules of doing business in China? Author and economist John Kay is here in the pod. His new book, Obliquity, explains how the best way to achieve your objectives is often the roundabout way. And the three men vying for control of the Treasury faced off in a live TV debate this week. Which one should be trusted to run the fragile British economy? This is The Business from The Guardian. Our top story this week comes from China. Rio Tinto has dismissed four executives calling their behaviour deplorable. In a landmark case in a Shanghai court, the four men, including an Australian, admitted taking bribes. The Australian Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, was critical of the Chinese legal process. The trial on the second charge was held in secret, with no media and no Australian officials present for it. This has left, therefore, serious unanswered questions about this conviction. In holding this part of the trial in secret, China, I believe, has missed an opportunity to demonstrate to the world at large transparency that would be consistent with its emerging global role. Kevin Rudd. Our Beijing correspondent Tanya Brannigan is on the line now. Tanya, what's happened to these men? Well, they've received sentences of between 7 and 14 years, uh, and those are both for bribery, uh, and that was a section of evidence that was heard in open court, or relatively open court. It certainly wasn't open to the foreign media. Uh, But they were also sentenced for stealing commercial secrets, and that's the section of the trial that perhaps has been most controversial. It's quite important because a lot of people have really expressed concerns about what a commercial secret is. Uh, and I think perhaps foreign businesses operating here have been concerned that it's really not too clear where the boundaries are always. Rio Tinto, Google, it's not been a good couple of weeks for Western companies doing business in China, has it? I think there is a sense now of some increasing concern. We had a um, survey done among American businesses recently which suggested that people were more wary of doing business here. And I think perhaps people are realising that it's not as easy as they thought it would be. There's been an assumption that businesses with a sort of wealth of experience behind them in other countries have just assumed that they could walk into China, it'd be relatively straightforward, uh, they'd be welcomed and they'd know how things would work. Uh, And now they're discovering that it's really not so straightforward and some of them certainly are beginning to wonder, is it worth being here? And if we are here, how do we uh, safeguard ourselves and how do we ensure that we can compete against Chinese firms and that our employees can operate safely? Tanya, is there a sense that this is tit for tat, that uh, Americans are now talking about the Chinese manipulating their currency and so the Chinese are therefore going after American companies a bit harder? I think there is a real concern on both sides that uh, they're not being treated fairly. So I think certainly in America, there's clearly a sense that China is not willing to take responsibility by uh, allowing its currency to appreciate um, and that that's a form of protectionism. Equally in China, there's a a sense that America is too willing to sort of raise the trade barriers. And I think there is real concern that we're going to be heading towards a trade war and that things could deteriorate quite quickly, uh, partly because of domestic political pressures uh, as much as economic ones. Tanya Brannigan there in Beijing. 
With me in the studio, I have our economics editor, Larry Elliott, economist John Kay, and our head of business, Dan Roberts. Dan, let's begin with you. There was a piece in The Economist this week which argued that Western firms suffer in silence in China, basically, because they're so keen on trying to maintain some kind of presence there. Do you think that's true? I think there's a bit of that to this case, but it's funny. There's two other elements to this case that I think make raise suspicions. This is a mining company, and mining and resources is the front line, really, in the tussle between East and West at the moment. Three big multinational mining companies, two of them British domiciled effectively, control nearly half of the major uh, raw materials that China needs to complete its sort of industrialization process. And so when this case first cropped up, it was assumed that this was part of that ongoing kind of tussle. China had recently been trying to take over a large chunk of one of them had been rebuffed and this came almost immediately afterwards, hence the suspicions. Throw in a bit of Google, throw in a bit of emerging kind of Chinese muscle when it comes to to dealing with multinationals and everybody assumed the worst. The curious thing is that these guys may well have been guilty and this is what we really don't know. I mean, corruption and bribery on these sorts of companies operating these sorts of markets is pretty commonplace. We've seen it recently with Siemens, we've seen it recently with BAE in our own country. And I think that there is a the, the, the Western media is. I'd like to think actually in the last week or two we've kind of come around to thinking well maybe there was something here. The the key thing is we don't we don't know because the court process isn't transparent. The legal process isn't transparent. The Chinese missed a trick. If they just been where they're not savvy is they don't know they can't they don't see how these things play globally. If they'd been more open here and if these guys really were you know guilty as as charged in a very open and shut way they could have shown that. Um, I think they missed a trick. Economist John Kay, I mean, you'd have thought that a big multinational like Rio Tinto, like Google, would know what kind of business culture they're they're walking into. And yet in Rio Tinto's case, they seem a bit surprised. In Google, they spent four years working under the regime and then they decided up sticks and move offshore to Hong Kong. Well, I think they do have a pretty good idea of what kind of business culture they're operating under. The basic problem we're talking about is how can you reconcile your business culture as a company with the business culture of the country in which you're you're operating? And my view is you have to behave as well as you can in terms of your own business culture in the business culture of the country you're going to. Now, you may find in some circumstances that you just cannot reconcile these two, uh, and that I think is the position Google found themselves in in the end. But the only way you're going to find that out, I think, is by, is by, or, or the only way you're going to find it out in difficult cases is by operating there and seeing what happens. And Rio Tinto, in a way, have the same, have the same issues. Larry Elliott, let's bring you in here. Well, I don't, I don't think that Google will suffer at all from what it's doing in China. I think that actually um, it could be quite a good business strategy for Google. If you want to look at it cynically, in the rest of the world, Google has got a bad reputation as this big monopolist who tramples all over everybody. And to be seen on the right side of the argument, on the human rights censorship argument in China, would actually be seen as quite a good thing to do, whether he's doing it for commercial reasons or because it thinks it's right. I think it's perhaps immaterial. I think in four or five years' time, this will be seen as, as quite a good strategic move by Google. It does it does indicate some of the some of the pressures I think of working inside China with a with a government which is essentially totalitarian when it comes down to it. And you, they're, they're prepared to accept companies provided they play by the rules of the Chinese Communist Party. And if you don't, if you overstep the mark, then the, the, the heavy hand of the Chinese state comes down on you, and that, that's what's happened. John, do you believe? Do you agree with that? Google wasn't just being idealistic; it was just being straightforwardly smart. 
I I would doubt if it was either a purely commercial or a purely ethical decision. And most difficult business decisions have elements of each in them. And I should think that's true of this one. Okay, let's leave that there. You can read more about this story at guardian.co.uk forward slash China. Now, John Kay's just published a book called Obliquity. It's subtitled, Why Our Goals Are Best Achieved Indirectly. John, in it you suggest that businesses and governments can learn a thing or two from the approach taken by people as diverse as David Beckham and Picasso. Explain yourself. Yeah, the, the basic thesis of the, or, uh, of the book is that complex goals are typically best pursued indirectly. Uh, and what I'm, my classic examples are that happiness isn't best achieved by the pursuit of happiness, whatever the American Constitution would, might say. That the most profitable companies are not, in fact, as a rule, the most profit-oriented. That the wealthiest people are not the most materialistic. And building on these examples, I talk about how this arises in. Um, in many other cases, I use the case of Picasso because uh, Picasso. There's an illustration in the book of Picasso's drawing of a of a cockerel, which doesn't look very like a cockerel, but yet it captures the kind of aggression or and stupidity of a cockerel, in a way that no photograph of a of a cockerel ever it could. It captures a cockerel's essence. Yeah. And where does and, and what Picasso it? said was that art is the lie that makes us realize the truth and you can see what he was he was getting at when you look at that kind of representation. And the producer won't let me get away without asking you, where does Bex come into all of this? I, I thought we'd come to Bex <laughs> sooner or later. <laughs> and I thought it was quite fun. A newspaper well down market of this one, I won't dare to mention what it is, ran a headline that said, Beck's a physics genius. And I thought this article's too good to miss. And what it did was it drew on an extract from an article in Sports Engineering that described how Beckham scored the winning goal against Greece and the professor said it wasn't very complicated, really. You wrote down the differential equations that did it and said that Beckham was instinctively doing some very complicated mathematics when he scored that goal. Well, the interesting thing about that, I think, is... Well, as opposed to just kicking the ball. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever Beckham really was doing... He wasn't solving some differential equations. And Beckham is actually a better footballer without being able to solve the differential equations than the professor who can. Yeah, but, John, but equally, John, Larry is wrong in saying Beckham was just kicking the ball. Because if Larry kicked the ball, it's very much less likely that it would have ended up in the back that's of the true. net. That's true. That's, that's why not very many professors of physics are actually playing for England, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So yeah, Beckham yeah, has some <laughs> real expertise, but we don't fully understand what it is. The bit I like um, is actually to return to the subject of the podcast. The bit I think is really interesting and it's chiming with a real zeitgeist at the moment is um, 
what is the best way of running a business uh, if for the long run? Um, we've been through a period where an awful lot of profit-maximizing businesses, private equity is a classic example, driven, load themselves up with debt so that you do have to focus intensely on delivering profit quarter after quarter. Uh, it's the, it, taken to the extreme of the kind of period we've seen in the last 10 or 20 years. And in many cases, it doesn't work. In many cases, perhaps because people do, it is too transparent. People think, well, this business isn't really in it for me, the customer, or me, the employer. They're just in it for themselves. And they recoil. And actually, as a result, we're seeing a really interesting discussion at the moment about different sorts of ownership structures, different sorts of ways of, of, of creating businesses. The classics I think of, and we were talking about Google earlier, you think of it like sort of Microsoft. Microsoft didn't set out, Bill Gates didn't set out to be incredibly rich. Bill Gates was a software nerd who set out to try and impress his peers by creating a really, really cool piece of software code. And actually, along the way, he created an immense fortune. But so many, so many of the great business successes aren't driven in that kind of very blunt way. And I think that that's, you're touched on a really interesting debate at the moment. Larry, let's bring you in here on the subject unrelated to football. If you're a shareholder and you, all you really want to see is an increase in the value of your stock and your dividends, then all this stuff about a business just doing magnificent R&D and making its employees happy doesn't make any difference to you, does it? Well, it does in the long run. I mean, I think what, what John's book shows is that those companies who ignore their shareholders or, or, or pay very little attention to them can often paradoxically deliver far greater shareholder value in the long run. In fact, I was having lunch today and one of the people around the table was a very successful businessman. He said he had four rules of his business. One was never talk to journalists. Two was never talk to analysts. Three was never talk to shareholders. And four was never to do business in any country with green in the flag. And I thought the the, the idea of not actually talking to your shareholders was actually quite a radical radical concept. He said that the company had had uh, compound growth over the last 20 years of 20%. So it seemed to be doing pretty well. I mean, I think that one of the problems with business in the last... 15, 20, 25 years, we've had these sort of plethora of business schools set up which have actually been all about maximising shareholder value. You can't walk into a bookshop without seeing ways of, you know, maximise your value, push up the value of your shares by doing X, Y and Z. And actually, the companies that do best are the ones that actually, you know, make stuff. You know, John makes a point about Boeing. When Boeing ceased to want to make good planes and tried to maximise shareholder value, the value of the company collapsed. I mean, I remember going to, to Boeing on a trip around America and wondering why it was that the headquarters of the company was not where they were making the planes in Seattle, but was in Chicago. It seemed to me to be utterly bizarre to have the, the management structure of the company completely divorced geographically from where the stuff was being made. John, it doesn't surprise me that your book would get a warm reception in a muesli eating newspaper like The Guardian. <laughs> but I mean, there, there, there are two points that come up in what Larry's has said that he's ducked. One is long term versus short term. If I'm a shareholder, I want my return quarter and quarter, year on year, and I may not be around for 20 years. And secondly, how do I, what metric do I use to work out what value I'm getting out of the business that you're running, supposedly in a completely oblique way? Well, looking for metrics is actually one of the curse of our times. I think looking for the business for these quarterly earnings forecasts and judging a business by how well it meets the quarterly earnings targets, which are what analysts typically do for businesses, is completely missing the point. We should judge businesses by their success in developing long-term competitive advantages. And that's what the guys who built great businesses, the people we've been talking about earlier, the Bill Gates, the guys who built up Google have done. It's what an earlier generation of people, the Simon Marks, the Sam Waltons did. 
They weren't in business to make loads of money. They were in business uh, to create great businesses. And they made a load of money along the way for themselves and for their shareholders. But for, that wasn't fundamentally what it was about. The most profit-oriented, probably the most profit-oriented businesses that have, there have ever been were Bear Stearns and Lehman and Enron. And where are they now? Yeah, I think you just have to tell them to take a running jump. I mean, if the answer to your question, if you want me to say what, what you should say to, to shareholders to say we want to maximise our short-run short, short run gains, you have to say, well, you know. No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm making, I, mean, I, I think ultimately if you're interested in running a company, yeah. you have to have a different way of thinking about it. And if your shareholders are coming along and saying you must jack up the share price in the short run at the expense of the long-run viability or a business or the long-run long growth potential, then you have to be brave enough to say, that's not the way we're doing it. It's, it's also not how most shareholders actually think and talk when you talk to fund managers. Even you know, no, it's the, not if, what they say. No, no, but no, no, no. no. But I, but actually, I mean, um, okay. So you have to separate out the hedge fund fraternity from the sort of traditional long only institutional shareholders. But actually, I think even hedge funds don't often want companies behave this way. But I think the key intermediaries here which stretched the system to breaking point were the investment banks. Because John's absolutely right, it's the analyst community that really focused on quarterly earnings because it gave them something to do every quarter, every results day. It's the analysts, it's the investment banks that wanted churn and trade because it gave them commissions. And actually, I think that the key thing here is that it's actually, this wasn't shareholder driven. This was a manifestation of, of the intermediaries getting too large and too powerful. Which I think we've seen in all sorts of ways in the last. Years. I think that's absolutely right, and the focus, the growth. What we're seeing here is another aspect of the excessive growth of the financial services sector over the last two decades, and we're talking really about the rather malign influence that that has had on corporate managers and corporate behaviour. And John Kay's book, Obliquity, is out now in hardback, published by Profile. This is the business from the Guardian. Now, we can't get away without mentioning this week's live televised debate between the three would-be chancellors of the Exchequer. Channel 4 hosted the first set-piece event of the 2010 general election campaign on Monday night. And here's what happened. We're going to start with George Osborne. We need to cut wasteful government spending instead of increasing national insurance taxes on hard-working people. Mr Cable, we had a decade and a half of artificial boom created by reckless lending and debt and a housing bubble. Uh, the Liberal Democrats warned about the dangers, but we got the crash. And now we've all got responsibility for clearing up the mess. And we've got to start with this huge government deficit. We can't avoid it. There are going to have to be cuts. And now you, Mr Darling. First, we've got to secure the recovery. Secondly, we've got to ensure we get our borrowing down to cut the deficit. And thirdly, and most importantly, we've got to secure jobs in the future. I've set out my agenda. It's financial discipline in the public sector, directed lending from banks to support small and medium-sized companies. Uh, we've got to have a fairer tax system. We've got to make the economy much less dependent on financial gambling. We've made the right judgment calls, both in relation to supporting our economy and also in relation to stabilising the banking system. The challenge for us all in the future now is to make sure that we can work with private sector companies uh, to ensure we get jobs in the future. Well, our economy faces incredible problems. And for all that Alistair says, he and his party and Gordon Brown have been in charge for 13 years and you can make a judgment on how they've performed. George Osborne there for the Conservatives, Vince Cable for the Lib Dems and Alistair Darling, who, for the next few weeks at least, is Chancellor Exchequer. Larry, let's come to you first because you wrote the, the review of the, the event for the paper and you made it sound like a 
a stand-up night in the funeral parlour. Well, they're all very, very soberly dressed. I, mean, they, I think there was very little colour uh, in any of them. It was very dark and sombre. It really was like a sort of covering of undertakers on a, on a, on a, on a lad's night out. Um, and, uh, you know, your little clip, and the number of times they used the word cut was kind of interesting, wasn't it? They're all desperate to cut the deficit. That seems to be the, that seems to be the, uh, the way forward. I thought that um, Alistair Darling was not quite as on good form as he was in the budget last week. He was a bit hesitant, um, a bit flat, I thought. Didn't really give very much of an inspiring peroration at the end. I thought George Osborne did a bit better than I thought he did. And I would, have, I thought he would have done even better had he just banged on about how badly Labour had handled the economy. I thought that was the str- that's the strongest line that Conservatives have got um, going into the election, which is Labour have made a complete mess of things. Um, and he's slightly muddied the waters with this... Um, attempt to cut national insurance contributions and not really being able to say how we'll pay for it and Vince had uh, Vince had most of the best most of the good lines most of the good sound bites most of the laughs and actually I thought most of the good arguments Dan I mean if you were a betting man you'd have bet that Vince would have had the best one-liners and Alice Darling would be you know safe but safe pair of hands but it seems to be George Osborne whose stock has risen as a result of last night would you agree? I don't know if his stock has actually risen, but he's he's missed a big opportunity to sort of um, destroy his his chances. Basically, the other two failed to really nail him on the contradictions inherent in his plans for national insurance. And at a time when all the pressure was on Osborne, you know, his judgment, his experience. Paradoxically, you would think the, the pressure ought to have been on Darling. He's the one with all the with the real explaining to do. But actually, this was Osborne's to throw away, and he somehow managed not to throw it away, which is a bit of a non-event, but none that's quite important in this and that I think had it gone the other way it could have all started to unravel for him quite quickly. John what price personality when you're running a huge Rolls-Royce department in Whitehall called a treasury which has got hundreds of people working for it and which coordinates policy with the rest of Whitehall? I think in both business and politics we actually hugely exaggerate the impact of the guy at the top. When I read what a lot of people write about business, it's as though everything that happened in General Electric was decided by Jack Welch or everything in Microsoft by Bill Gates. And anyone who's ever worked in a large organization knows that the reality not only isn't like that, but couldn't be like that. The great thing about a business like General Electric that's been one of America's leading companies for a century is that it's a marvellous machine that operates regardless of who the guy at the top is. And they've had some pretty amazing guys at the top. But that tells you that this is a great company rather than it being a great company because they've had these amazing guys. And I think the same is true of politics, actually. We like to think that it's all down to Alistair Darling or uh, Margaret Thatcher or William Gladstone. (laughs) But actually, a lot of the, the largest part of what happens is done by the machine. And when you talk to politicians... They're frequently frustrated by how little impact they really have on what is going on. Okay, so we've got three more televised debates. These this time it's gonna be between the leaders of the, the, the parties coming up. What's the oblique way of judging who wins in those? I, I, I think the oblique way is you don't listen to what they say, you look at what they do and the consequences of what they do. And I'm afraid if you look at it in that kind of way, then Gordon the TV Brown has got no a bit of a problem. <laughs> well, that's all from us this week. Thanks to all of my guests, Dan Roberts, Larry Elliott and John Kay. 
The producer was Phil Maynard, and I'm Aditya Chakraborty. Thanks for listening.